I think maybe a good place to start is what even is a recession? I think the median age of the ND hackers listeners, something like 32. Okay. Means that they weren't really functioning adults in the business world the last time we had a recession. And there are many people who were who are much younger than that who've basically only been building businesses right. through like these these upswing times. So, you know, what is a recession? Oh. Are we in one? Okay. So uh, we are, I think I'm not an economist, which is important to state. I do read a lot, but I'm not going to be like one of those jackasses on Medium who says I'm not an epidemiologist, but here's what millions of people should do. (laughs) Um, I'm not an economist, but here's my understanding. And I have lived through two recessions so far when I was paying attention to business stuff. The first one being the dot-com crash of 2001. So like... I'm 35, but I was doing freelancing and stuff then and paying a lot of attention to tech media. So I was paying attention. And then 2008 was a the Great Recession, which was caused, of course, by the crash of the real estate market. And I think that what economists are saying is that we are not necessarily in a recession yet right now, but like something is 100% coming. Like a month, like three or four weeks ago, they were like one in three chance. Of recession coming and now i think the consensus is that it's definitely coming it's not going to necessarily be global like other countries are doing a much better job than we are in the u.s so i think that's actually pretty positive the real estate situation actually affected pretty much all major economies mm-hmm. uh, except probably except china but then china then of course had less demand so like the real estate situation in the u.s and england and ireland and europe was was bad all around similar mechanism. And the reason that happened was so much of the entire country's economic activity had centered on real estate and the idea that it was going to continue to go up and up and up. And then they made bad loans and then they sold parts of those loans to people pretending they were good. And when the housing market crashed because people couldn't afford their homes anymore, everyone got screwed. And what's happening now is a bit different because there's nothing fundamentally wrong with the economy leaving out issues of like inequality and wealth concentration. But like, this is an external event that has a limited duration. And like, it's not going to dry up consumer demand if the consumers get paid money from the federal government, for example. So like the problem is a lot of people are losing their jobs because restaurants and things have to close for safety reasons. If the federal government pumps money into them so that they can all keep their salaries, the economy situation will essentially resolve itself over time. Whereas the all of the investments going into real estate and it was completely unsound, like there was no way to get that back. So like it's more of a pause and it could be worse. I think some people are saying it definitely will be worse. I can't say. I think it all depends right now what the federal government does to help the bottom of the like economic pyramid service workers. So just um, passed, I think, a $2 trillion stimulus bill basically to do just this, to try to help bail yes, the economy out. It's not, a, it's, not a very good, it's not a very good bill, unfortunately. It directs most of the aid at large companies, and it doesn't even require them to keep people on their payroll, from what I understand. And the direct benefits to individuals, aside from increasing unemployment, is like a one-time check. And the other sort of side of this equation is even if this bill was good, even if we did sort of help – you know, there are a lot of asymmetries and, and damage being caused and how you repair. For example, if companies have fired people, if companies have missed payments, uh, yeah. it takes longer to hire someone than it does to fire someone. It takes it, longer to repair your relationships than it does to go into bankruptcy, et cetera. Very, very, very true. Just like in the real estate in a crash, there were industries that were not particularly harmed. However, it spreads because if people can't buy consumer products and the companies that make those consumer products and spend less on like professional services and stuff and the filters out from there. And I think we're going to probably see a very similar dynamic. There's a lot of companies that are going to actually do well. Like my company did well in the, during the, the real estate recession. And there are of course companies that like sell software to restaurants or wherever who are going to be screwed at least in the short term. So like a big question is like, who are your customers and who are their customers? Let's talk about your companies during the 2008 recession because you okay. were actually already a startup founder at that point. I think you started two or three different companies. That's kind yes. of how you set yourself on the path to being self-employed rather than working for others. Uh, what did right. you do to basically build businesses that survived the recession and actually made it out through to the other side doing quite well? 
Right. I think the fact that it was more than one business is an important lesson, especially. So in 2008, I had been doing consulting with my friend John for another year. I had quit my regular job and gone back to consulting. And we were doing interface design work for a wide variety of companies, but we were charging like $250 an hour. So like pretty good money back then. And then I decided to move to Europe and told John that I was going to not work on that anymore. And Thomas and I instead did a bunch of consulting on like interactive JavaScript experiences based on social media. So like uh, we had made and shipped Twistory, which was a stream of Twitter emotions that people just mm-hmm. loved and the ad people saw it and they wanted to do it. So we had a lot of consulting work for companies like Pepsi and Ford uh, and their ad agencies. We did a lot of work for them. And instead of being like long running, we're building software that makes your business. It's, it was promotional type money. And businesses do promote in a recession because if there's fewer consumer dollars to go around, they need to try to get more of those consumer dollars. So it's something that went on for years. It only stopped because we decided not to consult anymore. It was nice, clearly defined projects. It had a deliverable that weren't really like long running internal projects. A lot of long running internal projects for designers and developers who were consultants or freelancers are like sort of ego driven projects inside a company. And that's that's why they, they tend to go on forever. Like no matter what you try to do to get the people to like make decisions and ship the software is in my experience, it just goes on and on. And those types of projects get cut. So you mean these are like the pet projects of some exact They're like pet projects. Yeah. They're like, well, we need to be shown to be doing something with, I don't know, e-commerce. So we need to have this project. And then everyone gets to try to weigh in with their ideas and it just drags on forever. And then at some point, even though it's their own fault, they're like, well, this isn't getting anywhere. So we're going to cut it. And I think everyone who's, been any kind of freelancer has experienced this on on some scale. We did things that promoted our skills and then we got these different types of projects. And we weren't the only company doing this sort of thing. There was another company called Stamen that was like well known for like their visualization projects, but they were a much bigger company than us and therefore they charged a lot more. So like we were in the middle. We weren't bottom and we weren't top. We were in the middle. So like when companies cut their budgets but still needed to get work done, they came to us. Because they still wanted it to get done, but they didn't want to spend as much. So like that was a a major bonus for us for the consulting. And the reason I didn't quit consulting and start products and then just hope the runway would work was because I am really risk averse. And I think that in good times, it's easy to say, take the risk, quit your job, save up six months of money. I would never do that. I would never, ever recommend someone save up six months and quit their job. Usually you would be able to get another job, but what if you can't? And that's, I think, the situation we're, we're in right now. So I believe in diversifying my income. So like while we were consulting, that was when we built out Freckle, which is now called NoCo, which is time tracking software. And we built it out because I knew that everyone like me who was consultant, I knew so many consultants. We hated to track our time. All the tools sucked. And so we just sort of faked the hours at the end of the month or whatever so we could get billing and guaranteed losing money. So I designed something that was as simple as possible to log the time as you went along. And I launched that to my mailing list. It was mostly like Ruby developers. That was what made you famous in my eyes at the time. Because what, the I Ruby wanted stuff? to build was Freckle. Oh, yeah. You would post about it. I think you're blogging at Unicorn Free or whatever your blog was back then. Slash and thing. I was reading a lot of 37 Signals, Jason Fried and DHH, yeah. building profitable businesses. Meanwhile, I was doing the exact opposite thing building businesses to get into White Combinator, not charging anybody any money, <laughs> running out of funding and looking sort of jealously at what you were doing, which actually worked without other investors needing to, to come in and sort of prop you up while you lost money every month. I feel like consulting for so many years and working with so many people who had these like cool ideas that would never, that never worked sort of inoculated me against the startup world completely because I heard like the same stuff from those people as the clients that I had known and worked for so many times. It was just like deja vu. I actually went to startup school, Y Combinator Startup School in 2007 in Palo Alto, I guess. That's where Stanford Mm -hmm. is, right? Uh, Where eucalyptus trees. I talked to Paul Graham and I had pitched him an idea and like I had missed the deadline. He said to apply. And then I was like, do I need to move? And he's like, yes. I'm like, well, I'm not going to leave my job that pays good money for $3,000 and uproot my life to go to Cambridge. Never mind. <laughs> Pass. <laughs> Pass. 
<laughs> it's probably for the best that you didn't because back then if you did anything regarding YC, it was all sort of like, how do you emulate the success of the best startups? And the best startups at that time, at least the ones that were sort of the golden children were Facebook, Twitter. These companies had a basically no business model that- Cortland, you have money. no idea. 2007, Twitter wasn't out yet. Facebook had just been like open to non-college students for like a year or two at that point. What was that, Reddit well, and Dig then? It was just like- Dig was this huge. Is pre, this is pre-pre-big internet startups. It's a long time ago. My Actually, the thing that I pitched was a product that would have like been something that we would have charged money for even then. So like, I don't know if we would have actually been accepted, but he told me to apply. And I was like, never mind. So feel pretty good about that. <laughs> well, what happened when I did it in 2011, even four years later, is my co-founder and I decided to start charging money. And mm-hmm. everybody in YC is like, no, don't do that. It's just constant discouragement. How are you going to grow? How are you going to get to millions of users? And I think it's different today. If you look at yeah. most of the big startups coming out of Silicon Valley, they charge money. <laughs> they actually have some sort of revenue model. But back then it was lunacy. And there was just no encouragement. It's constant it, discouragement from charging. It was lunacy. And it was the same reason that people were paying like ridiculously high amounts for like crappy houses and random places. It's the idea that someone will pay you more for this later. It's like an expectation versus actually building real value. So I'm, I'm not going to lie. The first year of Freckle, it made $27,000. So like not enough to live on. So we were still consulting. Thomas and I shipped a JavaScript performance ebook and it took like a year to finish. I was actually astounded when we um, we launched the very first version of it, the beta version, how many sales it made. I think it made fifteen or $20,000 in sales in, in the beta version. And then I spent the next year finishing it, which by the way, is not ideal. And I wouldn't recommend doing it that way. We were doing JavaScript workshops at that time that kind of came out of the book. They weren't about JavaScript performance, but they were like a high-end JavaScript mastering JavaScript, the, the technical stuff that people weren't teaching then, like metaprogramming and currying and all sorts of stuff like that that's scoping that still people don't quite understand in a lot of cases and we were doing consulting so that was like three four things we had going on and then in uh december 2010 we had the project from hell the last project from hell from ford it wasn't ford's fault it was their ad agency i fucking hate ad agencies so much and i was just like i'm done And so I uh, had known so many people like you, Cortland, at that time. So in 2010, who like wanted to create businesses like mine, and yet were just doing the most random stuff that I didn't understand. And I realized they just didn't have an understanding of what business is, what people pay for, why people pay for things, how to come up with things that people will actually buy. And so 30 by 500 came out of that. It was year of hustle at first. It evolved over time. So like... I had all these different types of income streams. I had software as a service, which is growing slowly because that's what it does. Subscription revenue grows slowly, generally speaking. I had workshops, which were semi-monthly for technical topics, had ongoing sales of the JavaScript book that we wrote, the recordings of the mobile pro workshop that Thomas created, um, some other stuff in that vein, technical eBooks. And then we did the 30 by 500, which was called Year of Hustle at the time. This mindset of diversifying your activities, your income streams. I think for a lot of people, it's hard enough just to get one successful business off the ground. And they find it Uh, hard to justify spending time on multiple other ones that might distract them. How did you make it work and why go that route? So, I mean, that's a very valid point. Like I've known people who, unlike me, focus on one thing who, for example, Nathan Barry, and I know that like Heat and Shaw told him to focus on one thing. And he, so he shut his info products and stuff down. And of course, ConvertKit is now huge. But for me, it was safety issue. Like I did not grow up with money. I didn't even grow up in like a financially comfortable household. It was very, very stressful to me. And then I left home very early. I left home, I was 16 years old. And so that was very stressful. And I'd always been doing freelancing. I would basically take whatever work would come my way. So I had done all kinds of HTML design stuff, interface design, and then programming. And I did technical editing and I did all, I did magazine article writing, technical magazine article writing back when you could just get those jobs online. Like I did all this stuff. And so that was very natural for me to be juggling like 15 balls at once. Um, It was nice and relaxing for a little while to have a job. (laughs) But then I had like people with a job I didn't like. And I like, people always call me brutally honest. And the thing is, I'm not. Like I would be professional at the office and I would just be like, dying inside. I was uh, working with people I didn't like or who were stupid 
or like sabotaging the projects yeah. or like completely undermining my work. And some of them were like getting paid more than me. And so like the rage just built. And so I'd prefer to be stressful doing multiple things at once than working with people I hated every day and having to do it with a smile on my face. So for me, doing all that stuff, it was stressful. It was a lot. However, it was less risky because I knew that I could launch this or that and make a bunch of money, like maybe 10 grand, five grand, 30 grand doing a launch. And then I would have that money to operate on, which is really useful. And then I didn't have to work or... uh, I didn't have to do the things that I hate the most. And I also didn't have to be afraid of like being poor. So to me, that's worth it. I've read some studies on entrepreneurs, specifically mm-hmm. around why people start businesses. And one of the most common characteristics is basically a disdain for working for other people. And also an inherent belief that <laughs> if you work for others and you get paid sort of a, a normal salary doing a normal job, that you're always going to be underpaid. You're always going to be undervalued because you bring multiple skills to the table and you're a little bit less, you know, maybe less adept at playing this political game and getting paid more to do less. Yeah. So it seems like you fit the bill. I've also read those and I'm like, that's definitely me. I would rather serve in heaven or reign in hell. Yeah. <laughs> I don't actually know which one of those. Would you be prefer me. to reign in hell. The I think I do. The I think I do. I much prefer to reign in hell. Yeah. I would rather be my own boss of a crap ship than a cog in a well-oiled machine. I'm not going to lie. Sometimes I do wish someone else would make my decisions for me. Well, the thing is that if you're good and you actually are sort of assessing your skills and your abilities to become an entrepreneur effectively, then it won't be hell. You'll actually create something that works as a higher upside than working for somebody else and create your own culture that you want and make the money that you want to want and work with the people that you want. So it's not always hell. No, but there are moments of hell. So I've never worked at a really bad job. Like no one ever harassed me or anything like that. Like nothing bad ever really happened to me. It just drove me crazy. And then some things have happened in my business that were extremely stressful. So like right now is kind of stressful because I'm the one in charge and I have to make all the decisions and like someone else's salary is my responsibility. And so like there are downsides and I don't want to say that there aren't. So like, but I also don't think it's, it's not hell to run your own business, but there, there's always downsides. It's like, are you going to eat shit or are you going to have to shovel shit? Maybe is a distinction. <laughs> I would much rather shovel shit than eat it. <laughs> so you're in the recession here. You're yeah. basically juggling all these different balls. And it sounds like your goal really was to transition out of consulting and move yeah progressively further and further into your own businesses. Freckle yes. made something like $27,000 in revenue in its first year, yeah. which is not enough to sustain you. How did you get it to that point, despite the fact that in a recession, people are buying less and they're saving more and they're being pickier about their spending and they might seem to be less willing to you know, take a risk on an unproven startup in a recession? How did you grow your business? I'm going to address your last bit first. I don't think that in 2008, people were quote-unquote worried about unproven startups because like the wave of things being shuttered was not like it has been now. But also we did from the very beginning emphasize that we were in it to make money, to create a sustainable business. And also very initially, immediately we made it so you could download all your data. So like we did reassure people of that. I did pitch it immediately to people who were like me in my audience. And by which I mean my like cohort of people rather than people who just followed me. When people say audience, they usually mean like their mailing list. And in 3,500, that means like your addressable market, right? So a group of people who like hang together online and talk about things and share resources and buy on value. So development agencies and consultants knew me. I knew them. A lot of them were on my mailing list. I knew them on IRC, forums, et cetera. And so I wrote about creating the, the app on my blog, which is how you found out about me. And the people who already knew my blog also got to sort of go on that journey. And then we initially got about $1,500 a month in revenue when we announced it to my mailing list of mostly like Ruby and JavaScript developers. Do you remember how much you were charging? Yeah. So our plans were, I think, 12, 24, and like 48, I think. So for solo was $12, like one person. And then 24 was a small team. And then 48 was like a larger team, like 10 10 plus. It's pretty cheap. Um, Pretty cheap. We didn't have a lot of features. We really focused on time entry and reporting and made it really simple. There weren't permissions or anything like that. You couldn't even reset your password. We had to do it for you. You have to email us. So it was quite a few customers initially, like more than I expected. Growing it was a bit hard 
at first because I had to figure out what kind of content marketing would work. But then we created some cheat sheets targeted at people like you. So like it was about how to charge credit cards back when that was really complicated. You had to learn so much to charge credit cards. It was horrible. And uh, so I created a huge multi-page cheat sheet. I did write about the business. I wrote about design stuff and marketing. We did, Thomas used to write about his code parts. Like some of the JavaScript was pretty edgy at the time. Uh, And so he would mail his mailing list about that as well. Yeah, so these were the pre-Stripe days. It was extremely hard to basically charge for what you were building. Part of why a lot of people didn't charge. I'm sure that that had something to do with it. Like, because you had to get a merchant account, you had to go to a bank. It was a whole thing. Stripe is so much better. We had to hand roll our own um, subscription services, uh, subscription billing. I think we used a gem and modified it or something. It's been a long time, but I, I vaguely recall that. It was a lot of work. Yeah. We also had a free account then, which I mean, we still have free users, but we don't have signups for the free account right now. And I think that's actually something we may revisit at this time. So we grew a lot by word of mouth. People liked us because of the interface and they shared it with people. We have Git integration so you can actually log time from your commit messages and things like that that really the developers loved. Like I cannot express to you how bad time tracking software was at the time. Like it was extremely, extremely terrible. We grew primarily through word of mouth and reputation. We've never been big on SEO. Do you think that starting this business during a recession changed some of the decisions that you made around how to grow your company? Would you perhaps spent more money growing it or use less organic methods or would have been the same playbook? Nope, because I lived through uh, the banner ad crash. Advertising on the web crashes like regularly. And I think if you don't, if you haven't been watching it since like 1999, you don't know this, it crashes. Like people invent a new advertising mechanism. It pays so much money and then it crashes. Because then it becomes ineffective. People, People ignore it. Ignore it or they could add blockers. Text links, those little banner ads you could get on the side of like popular blogs. We definitely paid for those, some in the beginning and, and the conversion rate was ridiculously low. Growing by word of mouth and reputation is like the most durable way to grow because people will recommend your product and there's nothing better and you can't buy it. And if they love your product. There's also no competition. People will recommend your product before someone is searching for it, which is great too. I'm extremely pragmatic in terms of finances. Like I've said, why it was a rough way to grow up. I was always about saving money, earning money, not spending my money on frivolous stuff. And so like, to me, a lot of the growth mechanisms are dangerous looking. Yeah. They require a lot of optimism. Or Optimism, quite a ton. And if it doesn't optimization, work out. Optimization. Yeah. Hope that Google won't one day just shut it off. Like they have hurt so many businesses by changing stuff. Like legitimate businesses like Saul Orwell from examine.com has written about how Google like completely fucked their traffic over. I think it drops to like 25% of what it was before for no apparent reason. Like they're extremely legitimate source of information. They don't do any shady stuff. And it was like a whole thing. And they're, they're like growing back. But can you imagine if like, 75% of your revenue disappeared overnight. Like that would be horrible. Yeah, pretty frightening for the same reasons. And of course, building on the back of any other platform, Facebook, same story yeah. there. Suddenly you wake up and you can't publish posts to your followers unless you pay Facebook. Yep, uh, and that happens. And hundreds of businesses dead. Yeah, I don't trust anyone basically in that way. Like, uh, and so that has served me very well. Like, I don't want anyone to get between me and my customers. And so far, that has worked really well. Like, have we had years where we, like, shrank a little because I didn't work at all? Yes. Have we lost big customers because they went out of business and I didn't know they were there? Yes. <laughs> like, I've made mistakes. But one mistake I have never made is, like, no one can, like, shut my business off. I don't trust platforms. I don't trust Google. I don't trust search things like that that change constantly. I just don't trust them. And uh, people have made fun of me for this like a lot. Yeah, Freckle's still around. I mean, it's called No-Go, but it still exists. It's still making money. It is. And it has not been crushed by the downfall of Medium or YouTube or Google or Facebook or any other platform. It's it's totally fine. That is correct. Yeah. In fact, the only big loss we've ever had was recently um, we had this huge account. And I've, I've written about this sort of vaguely on a growth stacking blog. And I'll go into it more in detail at some later date. We had a very large customer that I didn't know exist. And they were paying us. <laughs> this is embarrassing. It's not related to the recessions going on. They were paying us like $5,000 a month. And I didn't know that they existed because they like wrote into us once and then never again. Typically, the larger accounts, we have several accounts in the like $500 to $1,500 range. They like to get support. 
They like ask for discounts. They like write in and talk to us. These people did not, had no idea how many, how large the account was. And their business model was like failing. And if I had known they were there, I would have anticipated that because their business model doesn't sound very sound at all. And so we just lost 10% of our revenue recently. Right. Better to have a self-inflicted wound though than a wound that you can't control. Because that's something you can learn from and you can do something better next time. But like that is a great example of why I have always said that a thousand customers is better than one client or one boss. But one customer that's worth like 100 other customers is is risky also. We now have profiling. So I could tell you how many of the other large accounts we have. (laughs) Learned that lesson the hard way. (laughs) But like so far, we've, we've lost only a handful of accounts so far because of the actual... A coronavirus situation. And I anticipate that that will continue to be the case. So we have a question from the audience. Chris Biscardi is asking, do you think you should have charged more from the beginning? You're talking about NOCO's plans being basically under $50 a month. If you could go back and do it over again, would you, would you have changed that? No. And I think that it was really valuable for us to get those customers in the door when we weren't living off it. And we were able to almost live off it the second year uh, and had the other stuff going on. The thing about pricing is like, you can't know what works and what doesn't work until you test it. Now we have much higher pricing now. We switched to a per seat pricing model and it's like, we have a lot more accounts to pay a lot, but those original accounts, if they're still with us, still have their original price unless they volunteer to pay more to get some features that were like segregated for the new account levels. I think that you can't go wrong by offering a reasonable price that is a no brainer when you don't have a reputation. Once you do have any kind of reputation, that's a great time to raise your price. However, if you were able to charge more and it's like a matter of survival, then I would 100% charge more. It's not like you're giving, I wouldn't charge less because it's like the nice thing to do when you're dealing with businesses because everyone's a business. They can either choose to pay or not. It's like valuable to them or not. But like we're actually looking right now at offering discounts to like all of our freelance customers of like a couple bucks, which is like 10%. But if that will keep them around, then that's well worth it. So like, that's the sort of thing that you have to think about when economic things are going haywire. So obviously, economic things are going haywire translates into people are spending less money. They haven't stopped spending money. They still need things, but they're more judicious about what they're going to buy. They prioritize aggressively. They cut out the cruft. How did that shape your decision to work on time tracking software, if at all? And you know, there's a lot of indie hackers who are basically trying to decide what kind of business they want to build. Should the fact that we're in a session changed their ideas to change what definitely. they to work on. I think so. Definitely. But here's the thing, like I'm going to give you guys advice that I give to everyone all the time because my advice has never changed on this. You want to create value for your customers. It's like hard to deny. So the best way to do that is to either save them money or make them money. Saving money is a proxy for like, saving time because it can like save how many people you have to hire or how quickly you get your work done and how much more you can do, et cetera. So it's like, it all comes down to value, which is somehow tied to money. And the more explicitly it can be tied to money, the better. So time tracking, if I were to do it all over again, I wouldn't pick time tracking because it is something that at the heart of it, people hate to do no matter how nice the software is, it's like a trailing indicator too. So it doesn't empower people to do their work. They use it to track their work, which to some audiences really makes it very dispensable. I would do something that's more proactive. And actually we are working on those features for NOCO to make NOCO more proactive. And I've actually wrote about this before any of this started going down on the growth stacking blog. So we are looking for ways to make NOCO more active rather than reactive, if that makes sense. Yep. In terms of people's workday, we want to get more integrated into people's workday in a positive way rather than just taking this task that they hate and making it like not hateable. If you can go the other way and like make something more impactful easier to do, et cetera, rather than removing a pain, that's good. But one of the reasons NOCO has done well, as well as it has, despite my neglect, is that it makes money for people. It does help people recover lost billing time. It helps them charge more. It helps them see how much they're spending on clients. You can't even see my hands. How much they're spending on clients for uh, time like that they can't bill for, like uh, sales. So you can work that into your actual hourly rate. So it's all money related, but like I would get even closer to the value production. And that's what we're doing with features. So that's my suggestion. My suggestion has always been to focus on making money or saving money, which is almost the same thing, or like killing like serious pains that 
stop people from achieving their goals. I love the, which, the fact that you said, you know, get closer to the money and be more, do something where you can explicitly tie it to the money yeah. that people are making or saving. Cause it's, yeah. it's, it's all for not if you're helping people save money, but they can't figure it out in their, their heads, how you're doing that. They have to think too hard about it. Then they're not going to understand the benefit you're providing. Yeah. And ultimately they're not going to pay you because they don't see the Extremely true. It has to be explicit. You have to really spell it out. And I think that we're actually going to revise some of our sales messages on the like landing page copy to be even more explicit. So for example, a lady who had like, I think a three person consulting agency wrote in and asked if she could like pause the NoCo account. And I said, you know, absolutely. And here's how you do it. Alternatively, because of because of the economic stuff that's going on, and I was like, you know, I'm a small business too. I, I would totally understand it if it would help. We would offer you a discount, and like, here are some more features that we're working on that will be like even more valuable to your team in the future during this like chaotic time. And she was like, sold. So instead of like mm-hmm. losing the account, as and I said specifically, you know, like it was not a very big account, and so I was like, if it saves you one or two hours a month, it will continue to pay for itself. And she's like, absolutely, you sold me. And so I kept her. So like, that's the message. And that's the message we're using to all of our customers who are concerned is we're offering them a discount and saying it can still pay for itself. And then you don't have to disrupt your routine and like switch to spreadsheets or all this crap. And uh, so far it's been working pretty well. The example that always comes to mind for me is uh, a good friend of mine who I've actually had on the podcast before. She's an indie hacker running her own business now. It's doing great. She's a solo founder, but she used to work at a company. And she's very social person and she's kind of like... The Is glue. it Lynn? It's Lynn. Exactly. <laughs> very social person. She's a chatterbox. She'd run back and forth to everyone in the company. She would identify problems in one area, figure out who to talk to. And she was providing an immense amount of value to her employer. But like, there's no way for them to measure that. There's no way for them to yeah. know about it. And so yeah. she just felt tremendously underappreciated because ultimately she's not being rewarded because the value she's providing, even though it exists, just wasn't explicit. Whereas if you're a salesperson, you can point to a number. And someone can yes. say, oh, yeah, you, you made this number go up here. So much we'll pay you. Or if you're a yep. software engineer, maybe it's not as explicit as a salesperson, but people can say, hey, people buy our software. You're the one who's creating it. You're valuable. And I think it's the same in business as it is if you're an employee. If you're not doing something that's super easy for people to explain how it makes them or saves them money, then it doesn't matter yep. how much money it makes or saves them. And so then you have to learn how to do that and make sure that you actually are. And I actually have an old blog post on Second the Bricks about I think it's called, do you deserve your salary or do you earn your salary? Which is about exactly this problem. Because even as an employee, you need to make that messaging clear to your employer because a lot of times people are fucking idiots and will fire one of the most valuable people on their team because they're actually just doing their work and not communicating aggressively what it is that they're doing and how they're working. And then suddenly they have to like hire three people to replace them. So like people are fucking stupid and you have to spell it out for them all the time. (laughs) (laughs) Most of people I've ever worked for, I'm like, you're bad at business. It was really astonishing to me. So like, I would assume that you're, if you have an, a job, that your boss is bad at business and that you should work to make your value as explicitly clear as possible so they don't do something real stupid. Let's talk about how you do that when you're deciding what kind of company to build. Because I talk right. to a lot of indie hackers who are... They'll make like some random idea. They'll be like, oh, I've made an app so that when you start up your computer, it automatically opens up these applications, which saves you... 20 seconds a day. And then that saves you like, I don't know, 20 minutes a year. And that's like worth $15. So here's $15 a year that I charge you. And I'm just like, that's not going to work. It's not a valuable problem. Uh, it's going to be hard for you to sell to people. They're not going to pay a lot for it, if at yeah. all. You know, I think a lot of people, they think, well, all the valuable ideas are taken. You know, okay. someone's already built a, a time tracker. I have to do something completely right. unique, something no one's ever done and solve the totally unsolved problem. And they end up solving these really trivial problems that nobody cares about. No go, as it is, is like, a tiny, tiny little player because for the past several years, I have been too sick to promote it or work on it. And so we've maintained it and we haven't done anything else. And it's still making over a half a million dollars a year for us steadily, minus that one large account that we lost. And anyway, we'll be able to grow again once things are going fine. So the idea of competition is not really an issue because there are millions and millions of people, assuming you pick the right type of audience and it's a powerful problem, millions of people who need this thing. And like, no one thing is going to solve all their problems. Like, it doesn't matter how popular it is or how good it is. Like, there's always going to be areas that require changes, like specific to an industry or specific to a way of working or like a mindset or preferences or even requirements in the industry. 
when people are used to paying for a product, it's much easier to sell them on a different version of it than if they're not paying for a product. So the idea that you find people who are like underserved and who don't pay anything for anything because it doesn't exist and that you're going to go in there and like change their lives, don't do it. Because the fact that they're not paying for anything is actually an indicator that other people have almost certainly done that and failed completely to sell them on anything. Whereas if you see a whole industry, like time tracking is a huge industry. There are so many people with so many products making millions and millions of dollars, you can probably carve out a small piece for yourself if you find a specific way to tackle the pain that resonates with a subset of the audience that is not being served well by their current product that they're using and already paying for. So it's much easier to convince someone to switch than it is to start paying something new that they've never tried. That's the competition side of things. Now, people are probably a bit more conservative right now. So it might be harder to get them to switch. However, if some companies are using like super, super expensive tools, they're quite likely looking to go to a more middle range tool. So like for Noka, we have two strategies that I'm currently like working to build out and design, changing my growth strategy, which I'd laid out on the blog because things happened. We want to see if we can get some of these other companies that are on much more expensive products, sort of like flow downhill our way. And we also want to offer a less expensive offering to people that I can already reach who are not necessarily in the market for time tracking, but have like time tracking related problems that I can then sell for like $9 a month rather than 19, which is what NoGo currently costs. So we're kind of like coming at it from both angles. And I haven't decided which to tackle first thinking about it because $9 a month easier to sell than like finding enterprise companies and getting them to switch. But of course, enterprise companies pay more and are more stable. So it's like, so I actually uh, think that studying the market, what people buy already, what people are already spending money on, and assuming that they may want to change because of pricing or because of emerging needs now that everyone's working at home, et cetera, or you find out based on what they say on the internet, if they're all super conservative and don't want to change anything. It's funny because this is one of those areas where I think, especially as a first time founder, your intuition is 180 degrees backwards. Your intuition might be, oh... People are already paying a lot of money for stuff. There's no way I can get in there and compete. I've got to do something that no right. one's paying money for. But it's the exact opposite. Like looking at what people are paying money for is almost like having the answers to the test. You know, what it am is. I going to build that people find valuable? Uh, what do people yes. already find valuable? Do that. Don't copy your neighbor's product, but copy their neighbor's insight. Yeah. The problem that they're solving. Copy that. You know, make a different type of product, a variant. Don't like copy their interface. Don't copy their actual marketing text. Yeah. You want to look at people who are succeeding who are getting something done that works like in a large way and figure out how you can carve off a little bit of that pie for yourself. And as for your, the ideas that people come to us both with, those are good time economic ideas when you can just stick around and have fun. If you really want to make a business, you have to find out something that people will pay for first before you create anything. It's fine to make hobby projects. I think everyone should do it if they enjoy it. And I think you shouldn't ruin your hobby project by pretending it's going to be this. Try to make your hobby your jobby. It's something I've been saying and hating myself for, but. <laughs> <laughs> Don't make your hobby your jobby. Um, no. The other that half of this so is terrible. what you're saying, which is look for problems that people are solving that they're actually willing to pay money to solve. But you don't want to copy your competitors' products. And again, this is, yeah. I think, exactly the opposite of many people's intuition. When I look at any hackers, the projects people are building, very often they look like just clones of other products. And so they're solving these totally unique problems that no one has proven that they'll ever pay for getting too clever there and then they're not getting clever enough with the solution they're building a solution that looks completely yeah. undifferentiated from everybody else's they say oh peter levels put a made by peter levels uh twitter link at the bottom right of his website like i'm gonna have the same thing i'm like oh these websites are white with dark text like i'm gonna have a website that's white with dark text like it's all identical and i, I wonder why that is why do you think people feel the need to build the exact same product as everyone else but solve these completely unique trivial problems I think the real root answer of that is human nature is we are built to mimic what goes around us. Like that's how children learn to talk and walk and everything. And so we look for what feels right. And what feels right is something that's really familiar. And so we just copy stuff by default. Like when I was younger and I started making websites, I was a complete mimic. So I'm not going to rag on anyone for doing that. I think that as an adult, you have to be like, what's going to suit my purposes? Like what's actually going to give me the result I want? And you have to like override that impulse. But I think that everyone has that impulse. It's just some of us are better at ignoring it and like saying, okay, that's a feeling. It doesn't mean I'm going to 
that's the right thing to do. I'm going to go look for some evidence instead. Business stuff is like an unknown for a lot of people. So of course they, they copy what they see and they don't necessarily even think through whether the thing they're copying even works for the person doing it. I've seen a lot of people copy stuff that isn't even successful. And I think it's just because I think they are unconsciously mimicking because they're like, they're already in like the frame. And so they're just sort of like, uh, this time tracking app should require you to select the project before you track your time. Most of them do. No code doesn't because I was like, what's wrong with these tools? So you have to kind of like question all your assumptions and like really be deliberate about what it is you're going to make rather than getting like an inspiration, which is usually just, I think, a memory in a lot of cases. You're talking about the uh, coronavirus earlier. I feel like I see the same thing. When I talk to uh, friends or family or acquaintances who live in a certain place, they tend to mostly just copy what everybody around them is doing. So yeah. whether they're updated on like the correct response or not, a lot of my friends in Georgia are like, well, no one here seems to be taking it seriously. So I'm kind of just going to copy what everyone else here is doing. I talked to some of my friends in California. like everyone here is taking it really seriously and sheltering in place. So like, that's what I'm doing. And whether they've read up that, on it or not, it just seems to be like, what is the response that the people around me are doing? Let's, let's do that. That is like a known situation in crisis response. Like a fire alarm goes off in a building. People, they don't like see the fire. They will look to see what other people are doing to decide like how seriously they should react. And I think we all do this to an extent. And we have to override that impulse. Yeah, herd instinct. So let's say we're looking out into the world and it's it's a recession and we're trying to figure out, you know, what do people spend money on? What do people spend money on during a recession? It's definitely not super trivial apps and, and little websites that aren't adding value. What would you say an entrepreneur should be looking at if they're trying to decide what to start? So there's sort of like two poles here. There's the trivial stuff that you're talking about. People do in recessions spend money on like affordable luxuries as a replacement for a less affordable luxury. For example, it's a known fact that people buy like fancy soaps and shit like that. And then they like cancel their salon appointments. So like massage therapists lose out, fancy soap makers actually can grow, for example. Things you can make at home instead of going out to restaurants, things like that. Like that's a known thing that people definitely 100% do in a recession. There's a consumer items though. And I think it's extremely risky and hard to break into that. I think that some game people, like game makers, will actually do very well in this recession. Like maybe even better than before because people would have other options to do with their time. But that doesn't mean that you can break in with something new at that time. I wouldn't recommend it. Consumers are very fickle. So the other thing is that businesses have needs and people have needs that they cannot get rid of. And so they will maybe go through substitutes, but they won't stop doing the thing. So for example, businesses absolutely still need time tracking, especially if they're going to be invoicing clients or if they have to do internal reporting for their budgets and stuff like that. They might consider downgrading to a less expensive product, but they're not going to eliminate that need entirely. However, some freelancers, especially on the lower end, are just going to go out of business because they've been just relying on work kind of like trickling down and not knowing how to get work reliably and not having a value statement. So they might just go poof. Other people might be spending more on things they need to work at home. For example, Zoom is doing really well right now. Other products like that have an opportunity to expand because it's a replacement for something that has to get done and that is getting done now in a different way. What would you say to people who are sort of looking out into the landscape now? Because this is a pretty unique recession. As you said earlier, it's not yeah. necessarily caused by some sort of naturally occurring thing. I mean, indirectly it is, but it's more just a caused by a response to a pandemic, in which case we're laying off tons of people, closing businesses. Right. I saw a graph that showed sort of the spike of unemployment compared to like the last few yeah. decades. And yeah, what we've huge. seen in just the last week is dwarfs the 2008 recession in its entirety. It's crazy. And as a result, there's all sorts of habits that have changed. People are staying at home, obviously. Like you said, Zoom and other video conferencing and remote software, Slack has seen like a huge uptick. People are engaging yep, in different behaviors, one, yep. I think. A lot of entrepreneurs are seeing this and saying, well, here's an opportunity. You know, people's behaviors have changed. This is a differential that maybe I can take advantage of. Like start a business that will sort of, you know, target one of these behavioral changes. Does that seem short-sighted to you? Does that seem, you know, at odds with perhaps just sticking to what's tried and true? Or does that make a lot of sense to be opportunistic and look at what's changed? All business opportunistic. I mean, so they're like, there's different types of opportunistic, right? There's like, I found boxes of masks at Home Depot, so I'm going to buy them and sell them on eBay. That's evil opportunism, also illegal (laughs) in most places. And then there's like 
everyone is working at home and this thing sucks and people know it and they're spending money on software. So I'm going to get in there. That's good opportunistic. The chances are that once things have cleared up, however long that takes, because who the fuck knows, the new habits form from working from home and stuff. Some people will absolutely drop. And so like, you can't know for sure that things will continue as intensely as they are now. I doubt that they will because some segment of the population actually likes going into the office. But like tools that enable remote work are going to be probably in the most case still useful for in-person work for like documentation or like half the team is remote. Things like that, I think actually are potentially a real boon and will continue to be valuable. You might have a dip when things suddenly like change, but I would think that solid tools that support work habits people are creating now is something that could be like a long enduring business. That's my perspective. It's, it's interesting to think about you know, what things will endure because whenever there's any sort of emergency, certain things endure, you know, certain things yeah. fade away after 9-11, you know, a lot of things were closed, a lot of things were canceled, but sort of life returned to normal, but we still have a TSA. And now airports have just always been a hassle since 9-11. And I'm sure there's going to be things that endure here. You know, maybe remote work will be something lots of people discover and decide, hey, that's something I want to keep doing. A lot of these remote work tools will see the so far temporary boost end up being permanent. And a lot of other things will go back to normal. Is there anything that you're in particular looking at? Are there any changes for NOCO that are... Sure. So, uh, I mean, I'll just walk you through some of the ideas that we've been kicking around over here for our business. So focusing really on the two businesses, the Stacking the Bricks 30 by 500 entrepreneur education business, and then NOCO, the time tracking business, or let's call it the software as a service business. So obviously, Alex and I teach a class called 30 by 500, which is $1,999. We just launched it. Obviously, our launch did not do as well as it has historically, which we expected... Fully expected based on the situation. And so what we plan to do, Alex and I, is offer one is to create a tighter community of the people who are already in 30 by 100 so we can help each other out, which is why I pasted the link to this in the chat room. And two, uh, we're going to look at emphasizing and refreshing and creating more lower price product for people who still want to get started or who need to solve some problem in their business but who don't have $2,000 to spend, which is going to be a lot of people. Mm. So because it's a recession, we are looking at things in the 9 to $99 price point, maybe a little bit more, like adding, enhancing job, uh, JavaScript performance. Uh, no, the other J book. Just fucking ship is the book I'm talking about. Uh, we're looking at refreshing that, adding some more support tools, which actually also kind of segues into some of the things we're doing for NOCO. So on our roadmap that I've mentioned before, you're going to be working on a focus mode, which is like you set an intention of what you want to work on. And you basically can queue up like a Pomodoro timer, but we also then track it at the end. And also thing that I've been doing in my business recently is setting my daily three priorities on paper, which I've also written about. I created a whole worksheet and everything for myself, but I really want that to be software. And I want that to be software that's integrated with time tracking. So you can have your three priorities and then you can track whether you're getting them done or not. And you can track your time with them. And that also can communicate within teams. So like one, if you're running around crazy and you just need like something to hang on to, to get anything done to help clarify the three priorities is like a great habit for individuals. Like it's been so helpful for me. And two, if you're in a small team or whatever, that can help be like a communication mechanism. So like, you know, what's going on rather than constantly asking each other questions in Slack. And so that's what we're looking at. And I think there's actually a crossover there, which is another thing I want to emphasize is always emphasize (laughs) work with the things that you already have, the assets you already have, the people you can already reach, people you already understand, because why would you throw away that advantage? And you especially should not throw that advantage away now. So that and the gold feature for NOCA, which we've been working on for a while already, we're about to ship it. So you can say- It's fascinating to hear like how many different things that you're doing. And this is something you spoke about your launch, basically not going as well as it previously had in earlier years, but you're aware of that given the situation. Something that I've seen with any hackers as well, where it's, I've had momentum going in a certain direction. I had plans, you know, this is what's going to happen in March. This is what's going to happen in April. And suddenly, you know, well, the global conversation is completely different than I expected it would be. Certain things that I thought were important a month ago now just seem completely trivial. Like I recorded, for example, a podcast episode with DHH and Natalie Nagel about work-life balance because they just had two completely different approaches to it when they both started their companies. And I thought that'd be something useful to have and sort of a discussion debate around that. And I was really excited to release that this week. And this week, all three of us said, like, you know what? It's not the time. <laughs> it's not the time to release it. You know, it's yeah. arguably evergreen, but you've got to be nimble and as a founder and realize that a lot of your plans and your momentum don't work anymore. 
and things are changing rapidly. That is so true. I hate it. <laughs> it's a pain. So just in case everyone's like, God, Amy really has their shit together. It's like, if you think I wasn't going ah, 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 <laughs> behind the scenes for a little bit first, of course I was. Just so you know, like, I don't like it either. This is the result of a two or three weeks worth of thinking that I'm sharing with you right now. I didn't just instantly come up with that. Just so you know. It makes me feel slow, number one, <laughs> listening to you, but also just looking back to like, for example, a time before indie hackers really had much of anything going on. And I could be as nimble as I wanted to be, react to anything instantaneously. I didn't have backlogs of things built up. I didn't have long-term yeah. plans. Whereas now I'm realizing, you know, when you're a little bit more established and you're a little bit further ahead, it's harder just to react to things. And as a brand new founder, just getting started, you've got, you know, maybe fewer advantages that you can rely on that already exist, but you also yeah. have more ability to basically do whatever you want at any point in time without any sort of cruft or anchor dragging behind that you have to sort of figure out That is absolutely true. And I was just thinking about this yesterday myself because I said we're launching this goals feature we've been working on for a while. Well, some of the things we kind of have to figure out when we launch is like, do we do permissions for goals now in our new features? Like everything gets more complicated the older it is, the longer you've worked on it. And that's undoubtedly true. It really is sometimes a blessing to be starting out because exactly what you said. I would actually be curious to hear, has Indie Hackers traffic changed over over this situation? It has. And so this is like one of the things that yeah. we've been worried about because Indie Hackers traditionally is almost entirely about people discussing their problems and their issues and their challenges with their startups. So it's very educational. Yeah. The forum isn't, it's not like hacker news. It's not sharing links about what's the latest happening in the world. And if you analyze right. the sort of problems that drive people to go visit a forum or go read a website... They all correspond to different frequencies, different tension curves. So for example, if your website is primarily educational, like Indie Hackers has been, it's very prone to people graduating, which is just a nice way of saying churning. You know, hey, I figured out totally. what I needed to, to learn. You know, I've seen 20 examples of people starting companies. I've decided I don't want to do this, so I'm gone. Or I've decided I'm going to do it. I'll see you in a couple of years. And so like basically in the beginning of the whole coronavirus pandemic sort of blowing up basically two weeks ago, and becoming, you know, a little bit more serious for people. We saw our traffic started going down regularly. Almost every day it was lower than the day before. We've since sort of switched into becoming a little bit more newsy, a little bit more focused on current events. It just feels incredibly tone deaf, I think, to to just publish the same content into this conversation of people talking about economy crashing and lives being lost and doctors making these life and death decisions. And we're just like, here's three tips to, you know, (laughs) grow your startup faster. So we've been more about, right. okay, well, how does the news apply to indie hackers? I'm not an epidemiologist. Yeah. I can't tell a country how they should prepare. But I can tell other indie hackers and founders, you know, what's going on with other founders in this space, which they're worried about. What are other people doing? What decisions are they yeah. making? And that's the kind of stuff that people want to read regularly. So in the last literally like week or so, we've seen those numbers sort of turn around. And this is going to be the first uh, recession or coronavirus related podcast episode that comes out as well. I mean, so you have that distinction. But it's a lot yeah. of it just comes down to, like I was saying, uh, reacting, figuring out what's going yeah. on and actually changing because it's it's not the same times as normal. And so you can't just run business as normal as a founder. It It's very true. And I that makes a lot of sense to me. It also makes a lot of sense to me that things are like turning around a bit now because initially everyone was probably just reloading CNN or whatever, all Twitter yeah. all the time. And that starts to wear off. And so then we're like, well, we have to have some semblance of normalcy. And also like problems are starting to appear in my life and my business that I have to figure yep. out. And so we have kind of have to go back. And I think like one thing that we we all really need to do, and it's like, this is not me telling you how do you do your job. This is advice I told myself as well. Like Alex and I have been talking about this. It's like, we just need to figure out how to help each other hang together. And that's why, even though I'm was quite tired, I have like doubling up. <laughs> I'm a <laughs> very tired a girl. It is. Um, I'm very tired. I think it's just really bad allergies because I haven't gone anywhere. I've seen anyone in weeks that we just have to help each other stay sane and like realize this is happening to all of us. And like, there's no one who's not going to be touched by this some way. Uh, And that like, we have to sort of let go of all those ideas that we had about how our future was going to play out, at least for the next six to 12 months. It's like, it's gone. It's not going to happen that way. We think it's just, that's just it. And, you know, we have to kind of, admit that that's happening and that's exactly what's it feels like it's we're grieving things and that we have to figure out how to like change what we were doing in a way that will work and it's not easy for anyone including for me even though you said i quite not talk so fast unquote 
One of the interesting things is it feels like, you know, I was I was pretty young and not involved in the business world during the last recession. I was still in college, but it feels like this this recession and this pandemic are just playing out so much faster than oh, in the past. We know what's going on. We're predicting what's going to happen like months before it's happening. Or as last recession, it felt like there was such a long period of uncertainty. You know, what's going to happen? Are we going to be able to dig ourselves out of it? Uh, and it just unfolded in slow motion over the course of almost a whole year. Whereas now it's like yeah. first months, we're closing down businesses and we're instantaneously like, it's going to be a recession before the recession even hits. We're battering down the hashes. We're passing yeah. huge stimulus bills. Do you think that catching yeah. things early gives entrepreneurs um, a special chance to sort of take advantage of this earlier or, or, you know, implement measures that would help them survive earlier? And also what would this be? That's a really good question. This is going to sound like I am just humble bragging or just maybe just bragging, but in 2006, my now ex-boyfriend's mother was like, oh yeah, you guys should buy a house. I'm like, no, I'm going to wait until all these people buying these houses go broke and then I'll buy one cheap. Like I didn't 100% foresee the, I didn't foresee the, the whole cascade of recession because I knew that I didn't know about like credit default swaps or whatever that shit was. I didn't know about mm-hmm. that at all, but I was like, this can't sustain itself. And so I sort of, it just played into my general, I don't trust when things are going so great because if they're overinflated, they will come down. And this is like not the case of what's happening right now. So it's like a completely different situation. It's not like the restaurant business was overinflated. The restaurant business was chugging along normally, like nothing weird was going on with restaurants and now they have to shut down for public safety. And so like uh, in that way, we didn't see it coming. Like I did not see that coming. But like having a sense that you have to change now, I think is is going to be a benefit. Yeah, you could start saving money earlier. I read a post about um, from a founder today back to himself in 2008. And then one of his top points was basically, hey, you have all that money in the bank that you think is not enough. It actually is enough, you idiot. <laughs> Don't spend all your time trying to raise money. Just be frugal. Learn how to be frugal yeah. with the money and spend less. And obviously, like back in 2008, he didn't really understand that. He spent all of his money way too fast. He didn't adapt fast enough but i guess yeah. we can see this coming we know that like hey it might be time to cut some of those unnecessary expenses and also realize that if our customers are doing the same thing you know are we one of those unnecessary expenses and how do we yes. how do we change that that is exactly true i have always advocated people like keep as few staff as possible don't don't hire a bunch of people on the anticipation that you'll have more income and and so on and so forth if you've already done that though it's cold comfort i think because now you have to make hard decisions uh, and that's not great <laughs> uh, I do think that no. any business that can survive and or even grow or start during this time will be much better positioned to like go just go even better in the future because being frugal, making the most of what you have, selling on value, uh, really understanding and serving your customers to make a sale when times are tough really hardens you to be successful forever. And actually, I mean forever, but you know, like for the known future. There are papers that show that businesses that are started in recessions tend to do better over time because of these built-in like frugality and practicality and like skills that you need to make a sale when things are hard also work really well when things are good. Yeah. It's almost like the, the advice to build a successful business during a recession is basically the same as the advice to build a successful business out of, rece- out of a recession, but it's yeah. like with an asterisk, take this advice more seriously. Do it harder. Yeah. Do it harder. It's always good to be frugal. It's always good to be careful about your spending, but now it's like an issue of life or death that you will not survive if you're not frugal. Yeah. I think that that is, that is really true. Unless you're in one of those companies that's suddenly booming. Like I don't think Slack is going to have any, any issues right now or for the foreseeable future, for example. Rand Fishkin made a, a good post on his blog. I think yesterday, the day before, just about how difficult it is to basically engage in marketing. Now you have to be very careful. Because yes. I think there's a fine line that is easier for some people to spot than others between exploiting a human tragedy and building a growing business and communicating with their customers well. Uh, how do you see that line with no-go? Uh, you know, for example, if you were to offer some sort of promotion that's right. somehow in line with what people are going through during you know, the times of a pandemic, how might you phrase that? What would you keep in mind to make sure that you don't come off the wrong way? Did see that post, but I 100% agree with that. Also, animals with a Z put out, they do content marketing stuff. I'm not sure where that name came from. Uh, you hear animals with a Z and it sounds like something very different. They do content marketing like strategy <laughs> and they did a, a great, really re- great recent post about like that people need voices and leadership. And then they had specific advice in there. I have 100% always been about understanding the customer's needs, 
and being respectful of them as people and showing how we will help them as like sort of servant leadership is the idea. Everything in the 3500 world, all my business advice is always about respecting your customers as people, Mm -hmm. which means understanding their needs and serving their needs and being honest and helping people through those techniques. And so I feel like that I've got that pretty much on lock. However, I have not written a COVID-19 announcement email to no customers because I don't want to be like all the random people I'm going to email start about that stuff. Like it's gotten stupid. so many of those emails. I don't want to write anything until it's like, here's how I can help you. I don't honestly think that anyone cares that we're a remote company. Like I'm not gonna be like, here's how things are working at the slash seven offices. No, it's like, here's how we can help you is the only thing we're saying right now, I think. Yep. And so I want to put together some resources for freelancers, how they can weather the business. It's like the same type of advice I'm giving you, but like tailored because I was consulting at that time as well. I've been a freelancer. I've been a freelancer who made like 10 bucks an hour and like couldn't eat anything but ramen noodles. And then I got, was a freelancer who made $500 an hour and like chose to quit. So like I've been there and I want to offer support and possibly like some programs to help people with the no-co bill. If we can keep them, if we can both give up something and stay in business and they can keep using our product to run their business. Like, I feel like that's a win-win, but I have to come up with what exactly that is. So like, that's my advice is don't go telling people what you want to say, tell them something that they will benefit from hearing one way or another. I think be real. Alex paused our, it's a newsletter that's pre-programmed with weeks of content from that we've written before. Like new people don't see this. So people see new stuff every week and he paused it because it's just like tone deaf right now. Like that's what we've been doing. We don't send out like a normal no-co newsletter, which is like one of the problems I want to fix. And now is not a time to start with generic freelancing content. So I think being respectful, I think not being in denial, I think focusing on people as humans who have concerns is really the way to go. But I think it's always the way to go. I mean, I, I think it's perfect because you're you're talking about being customer first and basically helping people, which also requires you to understand your customers and the problems they're yeah. going through, which is a step Absolutely. a lot of people skip. And if you're only thinking, okay, well, I what know. do I need as a business owner? What do I need? I need to keep the lights on. I need this. I need that. Like no one cares yeah. what you need. <laughs> they really don't. I think to a small degree, if your customers enjoy your product, that they want you to keep your lights on, but they don't want to like just read about that understandably. And I think that focusing on the recipient is always the way to go. I read How to Win Friends and Influence People when I was like a young teenager. And there's a whole chapter where he rips up a letter that he received from someone and he just destroys it. And he's, it's all about like what the radio company wants him to pay for a subscription or something like that. Like really old timey yet weirdly topical at the same time. And he says, you want you want, you know, like, I don't give two figs for what you want, you unmitigated <laughs> ass. I only care about what I want. And what I want is blah, 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 blah. Uh, and I like that, like, hit me so hard. And I've lived, tried to live, live my corporate life that way. Yeah. It's like, the customers don't care what you want, except where it aligns with what they want. Exactly. Um, and even if it's the same thing, you should talk about their needs first. And I think that's just a good rule all the time, but especially in this time, because who wants to be like dealing with a bunch of crap and then hearing some tone deaf corporate email? One of my favorite emails that I've gotten so far, honestly, it wasn't particularly caring. It wasn't particularly empathetic and and in sort of like the stereotypical ways, but it was empathetic in terms of how much the people who wrote that knew what I actually cared about. And it was from this burger company in San Francisco called Creator. And they have a whole like robot created burger assembly line. And their whole email oh. is like, here's how we've outfitted our line to minimize human contact. It's all like, they even had like a picture of like their burger coming out of like a slot and a window with like, it was like completely wrapped in plastic and a delivery driver grabbing it. So they wouldn't even have any contact with it. And I'm like, this is someone who gets it because they understand right. what I'm concerned about is like, I just don't want to get infected with the coronavirus. Right. And so they're telling me like how their product is going to help me stay safe. And they're appealing to that emotion. That is such a great example because as you said, they're like empathetic, but not when people say empathetic, like, oh, I know how you're feeling type empathetic. They're empathetic in like a, a functional way. Super. Yeah. Like you, you wouldn't want like a heartfelt letter about suffering from your burger company, like not really. context. No, but they're empathizing with your actual desires and just going straight to it rather than like touchy feely empathizing. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great example. Yeah, I've gotten lots of emails where it's like, oh, I hope you're staying safe and here's how we're staying safe. And then it's like they're doing nothing whatsoever to, <laughs> to like yeah. to help. 
yeah, like our office will remain open. GM Financial, we have a truck and GM Financial is the worst. Like we fucking hate them. Like they're so bad that when we tried refinancing it, they didn't send the paperwork. So we couldn't refinance it. Like that's how bad they are. We can't escape them literally. And basically their COVID-19 email was like, you can pay your bill online. (laughs) And the thing is we already did. Like we've never paid the bill over the phone or whatever. And so they're just like reminding us there's no fee. <laughs> That's one way to reduce churn. It's just prevent people from leaving. <laughs> it's the comp. Yeah. They're like the bank of Comcast. Yeah. I don't know. On the West coast, if you know Comcast, they're famous for like refusing to cancel you. They'll say that they will, and then they don't do it. One of the um, most hated companies of all time. It's true. And for good reason. Yeah. So like a lot of tone deaf emails, I would rather send nothing than send a tone deaf email. Honestly, much better off not doing that. So much better off. You know, this is, it's been an informative discussion and obviously you and I are both going through this. You with the real business, me with the project that doesn't make any money whatsoever. But (laughs) (laughs) Uh, what would you say to people who are considering starting their very first business? I talked to a lot of indie hackers who've been making plans for months to start their business and I'm trying to figure something out. And now the entire landscape has changed. Uh, What do you think they should take away from your experience here? So I think the first advice that I have actually is to like minimize your risk. So if you have a job that pays okay and you're like not dying there, keep it. If you are freelancing or uh, consulting, I would say you definitely want to invest in that right now to make sure that you have as much financial continuity as you can. Like, this is oxygen mask situation. It's really important to protect yourself because the worst thing is to think my business has to make money tomorrow and it doesn't. Like that's such a horrible situation. If you have any better way to make money that is more reliable or safer right now, I say do that first. Secure your oxygen mask first before you try anything. Second, I think it's time to let go of the idea of passion projects as businesses, not for fun. Like you should do whatever things that make you happy for fun all you want. It's very important. Now is the best time to like get real about like what do people actually pay money for and to actually research your customers like I teach with the sales safari workshop and in 3500 and all the things I've written. If you study what people actually do and what companies are making money and continue to make money and figure out how you can carve out a little bit of that pie like for yourselves, that is honestly the safest thing you can do. And it's always good advice, which is why I've been giving this advice since 2010, (laughs) Um, to just understand that when things are good, people will spend on a lot of frivolous stuff that couldn't survive during a bad time. And you don't want to be one of those. You definitely don't want to start one of those. Like if you already have one, now's the time to figure out how to pivot to people who will get like measurable value from it and charge them money instead. And if you haven't started anything, I mean, like you haven't dug a hole for yourself, so stop digging. Great advice. Amy, thanks for taking the time to have this chat with me. Hopefully we'll have some more productive chats over the course of the year. Can you tell people where they can go to find out more about what you're up to with 3500 and NOCO and anything else you've got going on? So uh, the website you should go to is stackingthebricks.com. That's like building a wall little piece by piece, which is the way that I suggest people build their businesses. Uh, We have a mailing list there and I will be updating some of this discussion, like recession advice and links to our best articles and stuff uh, on the newsletter soon. So now's a good time to join the newsletter. I recommend it, listeners. Some of my uh, favorite guests who built some big businesses and have come onto the Indie Hackers podcast learned everything they know from Amy. So visit Stack in the Bricks and check her out. So many of them have made more money than me, which is like half embarrassing. It's bittersweet. Because we but, but also really, I'm, I'm proud of it at the same time. So like, yeah, I'll, <laughs> I'll take met, a small amount of credit. Met, met quite a few indie <laughs> hackers as well. who have made a lot more money than I ever had. Uh, thanks so much, Amy. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Everybody hang in there. <laughs>